0: Hi, I'm Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks. Um, up until now, I've been going chapter by chapter through I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and I'm going to go ahead and basically skip chapter four. So I want to jump into chapter five because chapter five has a lot that I want to cover and I want to talk about. Um, chapter five is called Looking Up Love in God's Dictionary, Learning the True Definition of Love. And... He starts off with the story of Jeff and Gloria. And Jeff and Gloria, um, I'm just going to read directly from the book. You did what? I asked in disbelief. Jeff laughed loudly and accelerated the car as we went around a turn. My shock apparently energized him. Gloria told her mom she was staying at her friend's house and we rented a room at a hotel last Friday night. He said as if it were no big deal. Jeff and his girlfriend Gloria had been going out for a while. If you didn't count the numerous times they had broken up and reconciled, they had dated for almost a year. Jeff had always remained vague about their level of physical involvement, but now they had obviously fully consummated their relationship. We got a room at the Holiday Inn, he explained as he put his hand out the window into the cool night air. Turning to me, he grinned, winked mischievously, and said, Man, oh man. I can't believe you, I said, letting the tone of my voice convey my disapproval. You mean Gloria, you and Gloria had, you had, I mean, you slept together? Jeff could tell I wasn't pleased. He wanted me to be impressed, to slap him on the back like one of his football teammates in the locker room and praise him for his exploit. I wanted to slap him all right, but not on the back. Look, Josh, he said defensively, we waited a long time for this. It was really special. Maybe it doesn't meet your morals, but we felt it was the right time to show our love. "'My morals?' I said indignantly. "'My morals? Since when are they mine? "'How many times have we talked about this? "'With each other, at church. "'Jeff, you know that wasn't right. You, "'We love each other,' Jeff said, cutting me off mid-sentence. "'If you ever really fall in love, then you'll understand.' "'The conversation ended. "'For some reason, the stoplight took forever to turn green. "'We sat silently as the turn signal clicked off and on. "'I looked out the window. Four years later, Jeff was going to college in Michigan.' I'm engaged, he told me over the phone. Debbie is incredible. I've never been so in love. That's great, I said. My congratulations sounded hollow. I couldn't help it. I was thinking of Gloria. I hadn't seen her for a long time. Where was she now? Three or four girlfriends back? Love, huh? Okay, so <laughs> let's talk about this. Um, the problem here is, is really not, the problem is not that jeff and gloria had sex okay they're teenagers let's talk about some of the details that we can ga- uh, glean from the story of jeff and gloria okay i am absolutely 100 percent of the opinion that women and girls should have agency over their own bodies what i see is that like my ideas of right and wrong or my morality i don't have the right to put that on other people That being said, I am such a huge believer in something called relational integrity. There is a right and a wrong way to do things that applies for everybody. I don't care if you're an atheist, a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu. I don't care. There are certain principles of relationship that are or should be universal. And relational integrity is one of them, okay? So what we have here is we have uh, Jeff and Gloria, who very clearly had a plan together. And according to what Jeff says, uh, he, you know, he says it was very, I hope it was very special. That being said, Jeff was not the good guy here, okay? Why? What is the big problem that we have here? Well, there's a couple problems that we have here. Uh, Josh literally says, Jeff had always remained vague about their level of physical involvement. Here's the thing, if Joshua Harris was really like the good stand-up guy that he wants to pretend that he is, this is not something that he ever should have been talking about in the first place. Women are not conquests. We are not something that you brag about. So the big problem here is Jeff going to Josh and bragging about his concept. The The funny thing is the thing that Josh is like so upset about the fact that, you know, they had sex is not actually really the biggest problem. The biggest problem is Jeff coming and bragging about it. And so instead of Joshua rebuking him to use the the Christian term, And saying, why are you telling me about this? If this is so special, why are you going and bragging about it? There's a lot of really good stuff in this book. There really is. But it is buried under so much patriarchy. And what's interesting to me is... um, how difficult I mean it's it's difficult enough for women to see it but it is so difficult for men to recognize the destruction of patriarchy and to actually see uh what is the real problem here because the real problem here is not that uh he and his girlfriend that he'd been dating for a long time now had a, a deep intimate relationship that they felt together and mutually that they wanted to move um into uh sex That's not actually the problem. The problem is you got Jeff out here bragging about it. That's the problem. Um, So then Josh moves into um, a story of another couple. So uh, once again, I'm going to go back to the book and I'm just going to I'm going to read the story of uh, this is the story of Eric and Leslie. How does Chinese sound? I asked as we pulled out of the driveway. Hey, that's great. Eric replied with his typical enthusiasm. I'd only just met Eric and his wife, Leslie, but had already noted Eric's exuberance and excitement about everything, even my restaurant suggestion. That all right with you, honey? He gently asked Leslie, who was sitting in the back seat. Sure, she replied sweetly. Eric and Leslie had stopped by to visit me during a drive through the Northwest. A friend in Colorado had told me about these newlyweds and the book they had written called His Perfect Faithfulness. Their book told the story of how they met and grown to love each other without following the typical pattern of dating. You'd be hard-pressed to find two more romantic people. They adored each other, and it showed. Eric rarely took his eyes off Leslie. Sitting in the passenger seat on the way to the restaurant, he slipped his hand behind the seat, and Leslie reached forward and clasped it. Holding hands when one person is sitting in the front seat and the other is in the back? I'd never seen that before. After dinner, while we cracked open our fortune cookies, I had a question. You two can't keep your hands off each other, I began teasingly. Leslie blushed. Was it difficult keeping the physical side of your relationship pure while you were engaged? Eric took Leslie's hands and smiled at her before he answered. Of course, the desire for that was present. It always will be, he said. But no, it wasn't a struggle. Leslie and I decided very early in our relationship that we were going to refrain from physical contact until we were married. Our first kiss was at the altar. My jaw dropped. You didn't kiss until you got married? Nope, Eric said, beaming. The most we did was hold hands. And Josh, we know that kind of standard isn't for every couple. We didn't make that decision to be legalistic. It came from the heart. Everyone, even our parents, told us we should kiss. But we both decided waiting was what we wanted to do. It was a way to show our love, to protect each other before we were married, and then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, let me tell you, Josh, that first kiss was the most incredible, beautiful thing in the world. I can't even begin to describe it. Eric and Leslie, Jeff and Gloria, two couples that used the same word, love, to explain what motivated them to act in opposite ways. Were both couples talking about the same thing? For jeff and gloria love justified a night in a hotel room enjoying each other's bodies before marriage for eric and leslie love meant barely touching each other before they met at the altar for jeff and gloria love was impatient and demanded compromise for eric and leslie love fueled integrity and gave them the patience needed to wait one word two definitions so here we have two couples uh eric and leslie and jeff and gloria and it's very clear that joshua harris has platformed uh, eric and leslie right uh jeff and gloria are terrible examples because they had sex meanwhile here's beautiful pure righteous eric and leslie Who literally did not even kiss until they got married. And this is what Joshua Harris holds up as sort of being this ultimate expression of love. Right? So let's talk about that. This is where the problems of patriarchy start coming in. I don't know if anyone noticed this. Most people don't. I'm pretty sure Joshua Harris doesn't even notice this or recognize this. But... His whole entire conversation was with Eric. The whole time that he was with Eric and Leslie, at at least in his retelling of the story, literally the only thing that Leslie said the entire time was, sure, when Eric asked if that, if going out for Chinese food was okay. Everything else, uh, all of the conversations surrounding their relationship all came from Eric. So what's interesting is, in this chapter, one of the things that Joshua Harris does is compare and contrast um, what do we think of love as being versus what does the Bible say that love is. And he uses 1 Corinthians 13, which is often referred to as the love chapter. And what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love is, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Okay, one of the things that the Bible talks about is how Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Um, In Matthew 7, it says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So Josh is holding Jeff and Gloria up as being an example of bad fruit because they had sex. Meanwhile, he's holding Eric and Leslie up as an example of good fruit simply because they didn't have sex. Okay. in other words, Josh is looking at the things that that he can see and he's looking at things through a very, very, very patriarchal lens. So let's talk about one of the key differences between Jeff and Gloria and Eric and Leslie. Okay. Um, when Jeff was talking about Gloria, Gloria literally lied to her parents in order to go to this hotel with Jeff. It was something that clearly they both had arranged together Gloria was all in Jeff had clearly talked to Gloria this is a mutual decision that they arrived at together on the other hand we have Eric and Leslie and Eric does all the talking Eric talks about how great and wonderful it was which really leads me to wonder how did Leslie feel about all this? What, what was, where were Leslie's thoughts and feelings in all of this? Did anybody even think to actually ask Leslie how she feels about all of this? Okay. Um, I want to refer back to chapter one again with, uh, Josh and Kelly, you know, Kelly was Josh's first girlfriend. Um, he was very concerned about how much time they spent on the phone together, how much, uh, time and energy his relationship with her was taking up um if you'll recall he said that uh they talked on the phone late into the night after his parents went to bed and kelly knew him better than anyone else so then he goes off to this retreat and he realizes okay this relationship is taking up too much time so he goes back and he says to kelly we have to break up and then he says we both knew this was coming and I assert that Kelly knew no such thing because Kelly's next words were Do you think there is a future for us? Do you think there's any possibility we could get back together again in the future? Which tells me Kelly was not on board with this. And Josh didn't actually go to her and talk to her and um, come to some mutually beneficial arrangement, such as maybe we need to spend less time together. Um, maybe we need to, um, back off a little bit or take things down. There was none of that. Josh just literally went to her and unilaterally decided we have to break up. And I assert that there's a very good chance that this is what happened here with Eric and Leslie. The good news is this book was written 25 years ago. And so we can go look at where Eric and Leslie are today. So I want to talk about Eric and Leslie Luddy. Their their name is L-U-D-Y so I don't know if that's Luddy or Luddy. So I'm going to go with Luddy. Um, But they run this organization called Ellerslie Ministries. So Luddy's Ministries there's a couple of things that I personally consider to be red flags. The first is that they're women's ministries. They have two women's ministries and they are the Ellerslie Girl and Ellerslie Motherhood. That's it. Girls and mothers and this is something that you'll find pretty common throughout evangelicalism and a lot of evangelical churches and just churches in general is that (laughs) women have two roles you're you're a girl you're young you're you're not not married yet and then obviously you're a mother so there's there's literally no world in which a woman can just be a single woman and this is so very common throughout evangelicalism. And for me, that's a big red flag. And then another big red flag for me is that Eric's men's daily devotional is called the Daily Thunder. And for anyone who is familiar with uh, Kristen Dumez's Jesus and John Wayne, if you just, if you look at his website, everything is very war, masculine, power, blah, blah, blah. But from their own website, one more thing that is just a big red flag to me is that Eric is the president of the Ellerslie Mission Society. He is the director of the Ellerslie Discipleship Training. And he is also the teaching pastor of Ellerslie Campus Church. And to me, that is kind of counter to love does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking that seems to me like the epitome of pride and self-seeking. I'm the president, the director, the head of everything. Um, this is literally their own ministry that they started, and Eric is the the king of everything. Um, but I did some exploring and investigation, and I found a letter that a young woman who had attended one of their training programs wrote. I will enclose a link to the entire letter if you want to read it. Um, but there's, there's just some very concerning things in this letter that, that ring really true to how evangelical organizations operate. She says, the main issues I have are with the rules that are forced under the pretense of being based in biblical principles, but are in fact preferences. One of the big ones is the rule on male female interactions. I understand the rules about no dating on campus and no deliberate one-on-one pairing up of males and females. However, I think this principle went too far. If I entered the computer room and only one guy was already there, I was compelled to leave in order to follow the rules. What does this say about how we trust people? This sets up a whole environment of distrust. When I leave the room, it is if I am saying to the guy, I don't trust you. And when he lets me leave without a word, he is saying, I don't trust you either. Either that or we're both saying, we're following the rules. But what is the purpose of the rule? Is it to prevent people from thinking anything bad was going on between us while we were unsupervised? But then isn't everyone on campus saying we don't trust the two of you? I see no other reasonable conclusion. I don't think that we should assume that our brothers and sisters in Christ are so weak that they cannot be in a room with no other people without something romantic or sexual transpiring. I found it far more distracting to have to be hyper-aware of when I happened to be alone with a guy, even if it was just at our assigned lunch table. There have been so many times in life when I've been alone with a guy for very legitimate reasons, such as when it was just me and a male co-worker at the restaurant I worked at when I was painting a room for a safe house for sex trafficking survivors where only one other guy was working with me, and when I was doing office work for a local charity with only another man there. The rule at Ellerslie was so absurd that one time when I was walking back from the grocery store with a lot of groceries on a frigid day, one of the Ellerslie guys who was driving by stopped and said, I normally would give you a ride. I wish I could, but I can't. In any other life situation, I would have been offended, but I just had to smile and thank him because I understood he didn't want to break the rule. Okay, I want to stop right there. I'm going to read a little bit more later, but going back to 1 Corinthians 13, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So she brought up a very important point here is where is the trust? By holding up Eric and Leslie as being this paradigm of good Christian virtue, and yet they turn around and the organization that they start literally does not trust boys and girls, young men and women, to even be alone in a room together. Or as she pointed out, they can't even sit together at a table, like a public table in a cafeteria. I don't personally think holding Eric and Leslie up as being this paragon of Christian virtue is actually accurate. What I see is that Eric is very taken with his own righteousness. And the Bible has a name for that. It's called self-righteousness. And by the way, self-righteousness is not actually a good thing. I think this just speaks to character because this is something that I find we do not look at enough in Christian evangelical culture is we don't look at character. It's all about your credentials or where you went to school or, you know, do we agree with your interpretation of the Bible? We don't look enough at your character. So I want to read this section from her letter because I think it speaks to character. And by the way, even though uh, this is only one person's letter, I found references elsewhere on the internet to this exact situation. Ellerslie claims to uphold high standards of decorum for guys and girls, particularly in regards to sexuality. Why in the world then were the girls made to clean the guys' bathrooms? Until I was put on chapel bathroom duty for the weekends, I had never entered a guy's bathroom, had never seen a urinal, and had never cleaned one. Furthermore, I never desired to be in that situation in the first place and never intend to again, which brings me to my next point about community outreach on Saturdays. Where were the guys while us girls were cleaning the bathroom? On community outreach." Since there were always way fewer guys than girls, the guys almost always were assigned to community outreach. Don't get me wrong, community outreach is good, but I find it unfair that the guys got to do this every week while many girls were cleaning the campus. This is a very sexist policy. So I want to stop there. I'm going to read their uh, code of conduct in just a minute that the students at Ellerslie have to sign. One of the things I want to point out is from their own website, Ellerslie offers like a a 10-week youth um, training program or uh, intensive, something along those lines. It's $5,000. It's $4,950. So five grand. So parents are paying five grand to send their kids to this Ellerslie training camp and they're cleaning bathrooms and here's the thing I don't have an issue with young people actually doing work or labor or cleaning things like that um, I think it's actually good obviously what I strongly object to and this is very 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 typical of evangelical culture is that the girls are staying there cleaning while the boys go out and do community outreach this is sort of evangelical grooming 101 but I'm going to move on. I'm, this this is going to get a little complicated. This is a letter that she's writing essentially to the Letties. It's like an open letter. What the way I'm taking this is apparently there's um, several leadership couples on this campus, and they have a big campus in Colorado Springs. And so apparently the staff is, or one of the staff couples is the McConaughey's. So. This is what she has to say about that. Also, you required students to clean yours and the McConaughey's home every week. How is it community outreach for students to be helping out at your house with moving things and painting and cleaning at the McConaughey's house? That's not outreach. That's inreach. Unless I missed something important, I thought the point of community outreach was to do good things for the community so that they may see Jesus through our love. Forcing students to clean your own house for free hardly has that same effect. If people offered to clean yours or Sandy's house as gifts, that would be one thing, but that's not what was going on here. It is taking advantage of students who have paid money to be there to force them to clean your home. If one of the requirements to attend is that students clean your home, then that should be stated as a condition when students sign up to attend. Speaking of the cleanliness of your house, Leslie has referenced in talks and in one of her books the time when you two stayed with a homeschooling Christian family while in town to give a conference. Leslie complained about the state of messiness the house was in and how the mother was resigned to it, saying that you two would understand when you have kids. Your house is indeed very tidy and you two hold up your home as a standard of how a Christian family's home should look. But what a lot of people may not know I didn't realize this until I asked some specific questions, is that you have two girls work at your house, or at least it was two when I attended Ellerslie. Actually, work isn't even the right word since they are not paid fair market wage, but only a stipend as they are interning at Ellerslie. I believe these girls believe they are doing ministry work because that's what you have taught them. However, I do not believe that keeping your home spotless can be counted as ministry. While the girls of Ellerslie were floundering with the lack of female leadership, there were two female Ellerslie leaders taking care of your children and cleaning your house, freeing up Leslie to write more books to help more girls, while the girls on your own campus were neglected. Isn't quality more important than numbers? Also, why would you only have girls clean your home and not men? Do you believe men are above cleaning? Once again, this is a very sexist viewpoint, one that the Bible does not defend. Okay, so <laughs> so here you have Leslie staying with a family and basically belittling them because their house wasn't clean. Holding herself up as being like the model of good Christian womanhood, with her neat and tidy home only she has people cleaning her home for her and one of the big reasons that I absolutely believe this is that every mother in America knows how next to impossible it is to keep your house clean when you have children it just messy houses and kids just go together the only way that you can actually have a clean house if you have children is if you have a maid or cleaning help So she's literally using these girls and young women that are coming theoretically to a ministry training program to clean her own house, to be her housekeepers and nannies. And that's their work as interns. Um, And here, this is from the Ellerslie handbook. This is like the code of conduct that students have to sign before they attend these trainings and I think that also gives credibility to what this young woman is writing about number one engaging with enthusiasm in the daily activities and labors of the school number three I'm going to skip over I'm just going to talk about the ones that actually apply to this deliberately choosing to forego the normal comforts and worldly accoutrements of life for a season in order to focus on the formation of Christian character. Number four, conscientiously upholding the value of the opposite sex, seeking ways in which to protect it in purity, encourage it in nobility, and sponsor the formation of true Christ-centeredness in its bearing. This seems a little contradictory because what's really the point here when you literally do not allow boys and girls to be in the same room together? Number five, diligently laboring to be timely in arrival at school events, consistent in attendance, and dutiful in performing all required assignments and jobs. Six, Respectfully treating the Ellerslie staff and student population with deference, favor, and humble submission. Honoring everyone present as if they were, in fact, more important and of greater value than oneself. Choosing to be small, overlooked, even unappreciated if necessary, in order that God might construct a true servant leader out of such willing clay. Okay. This is so ridiculous. There's so much subtext here and it completely supports what this girl was writing. There's, don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with expecting students to participate in cleaning or doing jobs or labor. Like I honestly believe that is actually a good part of forming Christian character. The problem is, I fully believe this girl when she says that girls are expected to clean and do all this work while mm. boys are out doing ministry because that is evangelical culture 101. And they make you sign a, a student code of conduct ahead of time that says you're going to work and do labor without complaining about it. I, again, within reason and within certain boundaries, I think that's partially healthy and appropriate, but this idea of treating everyone else as if they are actually more important and of greater value than you. There is a verse in, in Philippians, and Philippians 2, 3 says, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition of vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Okay, there's some healthy wisdom there. However, that is a very far cry from honoring everyone present as if they were in fact more important and of greater value than oneself. Choosing to be small, overlooked, even unappreciated if necessary in order that God might construct a true servant leader out of such willing clay. That is the language that is setting young people up for oppression it is saying I can do whatever I want to you and you have to bow in submission to me everything in that just contradicts first Corinthians 13 which is the picture of love which says love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking everything about this comes across as being extremely self-seeking on the on the part of the luddies and their staff i personally believe that josh harris was highly in error for uplifting eric and leslie's relationship over jeff and gloria's simply on the sole basis of the fact that Jeff and Gloria had sex, whereas Eric and Leslie made it all the way to their wedding without having sex. What that smacks of, to me, is complete and utter self-righteousness. It's the ability to brag to everyone, we didn't even kiss each other before we got married. That is supreme self-righteousness, and I don't believe that that deserves to be platformed or pedestaled. What's interesting about this is in Josh's next section, he calls it supermodels, and he says, we may never model high fashion in New York or Paris, but as Christians, we model God's love to the world. Think about that for a second. What do models model? Models model clothes. Models model something that is based on an outward appearance. And I think that Eric and Leslie Luddy are extremely concerned with their appearance, how they look to the world. I think they are chronic image managers. And as we see from the girls' letter, how they present them to themselves to the world and how they actually are are two completely different things. You have Leslie presenting herself as being super mom and the model of Christian perfection. Meanwhile, she's actually got two interns cleaning her house and taking care of her children. So that's the reality, which is very different from the image that she models to the world. In his next section, Josh says, I believe that we can better model God's perfect love when we avoid the negative habits of dating and doing this requires recognizing and rejecting the world's pattern of love. First, we must understand that all of the world's deceptions flow from the belief that love is primarily for the fulfillment and comfort of self. The world poisons love by focusing first and foremost on meeting one's own needs. There is certainly an element of truth to that. But once again, this is another example of when you take something that has an element of truth in it and you blow it up to its extreme, it's no longer good or healthy. Jesus actually made it a point to to take care of his own needs. He engaged in self-care. For instance, Matthew 8, 1 starts off, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So if you're up in the mountains, just FYI, mountains don't tend to be very crowded, which means that if Jesus went up in the mountains, it was probably to get some me time. So Jesus was clearly a big believer in Me time. Obviously, he ministered to the masses, to the crowds, but he acknowledged and he recognized his own humanity that he had needs that needed to be met. Jesus could very easily be considered the first person to pioneer the idea of put on your own oxygen mask first. Obviously, oxygen masks weren't a thing at the time, but this is something that Jesus very clearly modeled. In fact, later on in the chapter in Matthew 8, Um, Verse 18 goes on to say, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Okay. He didn't need to go to the other side of the lake because there were other people on the other side of the lake. He went across the lake because he needed some downtime. So it says, suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Jesus was taking Downtime. he went out into the middle of the lake so that he could get some rest. Okay, so then Josh goes on to say, The world tells us that love is beyond our control. This thinking has found its way into our language. We describe the beginning of a passionate relationship as falling in love, or people say we're madly in love with each other. You've more than likely heard people say these things, and perhaps you've even said them yourself. Why do we feel compelled to compare love to a pit or a mental disorder? What do these statements reveal about our attitudes toward love? I think part of the reason we make these somewhat overstated analogies is because they remove personal responsibility. We think of love as something beyond our control and thus excuse ourselves from having to behave responsibly. In extreme cases, people have blamed love for immorality, murder, rape, and many other sins. Okay, so maybe you and I haven't done these things, but perhaps you've lied to parents or friends because of a relationship. Maybe you've pushed your partner too far physically. But if love is out of our control, we can't possibly be held responsible. Yes, we know we behaved rashly. Yes, we know we might have hurt others in the process, but we couldn't help it. We were in love. Okay, so he's kind of on the money here about a couple things. We absolutely have a tendency to blame love quote unquote for all kinds of ways in which we hurt other people Uh, but once again if we go back to the biblical definition of love which is love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking it is not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Okay, that preve- that presents a very, very different image from what we see in mainstream media, in culture, and even from the evangelical church itself. What I see so much of when I look at the evangelical churches, I see a lot of pride. I see a lot of arrogance. I see a lot of boasting, a lot of, we baptized 57 people last week. Uh, We, thousand people got saved, thousand people came to Jesus. Like, why are your numbers so important? Are numbers really about God or are those about you? Are those about you tooting your own horn? Because from what I read, that is completely antithetical To what the Bible tells us love is supposed to be Um, and from what I read everything that we do is supposed to be out of love so even though love is not self-seeking that doesn't mean that love doesn't take care of itself Jesus said the whole entire law always has to be held back up to these two things Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Which means my neighbor is not more important than me, but I am not more important than my neighbor. Love is always having to balance the needs of the individual versus the collective or of each individual in a relationship. It means I don't get to have everything I want all the time when I'm in a relationship, but neither do I sacrifice everything, all of my wants, needs, and desires for the benefit of the other person. It is all about compromise. It is a constant, never ending compromise between in this moment at this time, whose needs are greater. What's interesting is, and I'm actually skipping back a little bit. I I want to put this paragraph in here. Earlier, Josh had said, if a man feels love for the poor but never gives money to help them or never shows kindness to them, what are his feelings worth? They may benefit him, but if his actions don't communicate love, his feelings mean nothing. By inflating the importance of feelings, we neglect the importance of putting love into action. When we evaluate the quality of our love for someone else simply by our own emotional fulfillment, we are being selfish, okay? He's... Spot on about that. It's not that I have no right or responsibility to make sure that my needs are getting met. I do have that responsibility. Um, But it's not all about me. It's about us. It's about both of us. It's about I have needs that I need to um, work with you to figure out how do we both get our needs met. But unfortunately, what happens is too many of our relationships, because of the culture that we live in, are capitalistic healthy relationships always work to create win-win situations how do we both get what we need out of this situation but in America too many of our relationships are capitalistic which is how do I get the most out of this relationship while giving the least that's capitalism so I just want to read how Josh kind of sums this chapter up. He says, I open this chapter with a story about my friends Jeff and Gloria. Unfortunately, they often subscribe to the world's definition of love. First, their motivation was self-centered. Jeff went out with Gloria because she was pretty, other guys liked her, and she satisfied him sexually. His criteria for pursuing a relationship with her could be compared to his criteria for choosing a pair of jeans. Makes me feel good, makes me look good. But Gloria wasn't much better. She liked Jeff because he was a prize. Because he was good-looking and athletic and he owned a nice car. They satisfied each other's sinful desires and helped each other's image. Okay, here's the thing. There is a lot of assumptions being made here about Jeff and Gloria. Because remember, um, Jeff took Gloria to a hotel, they planned this. Uh, Gloria even, you know, lied to her parents. So she participated in this. So this is a decision that they both wanted. And while, you know, we could argue about whether it was right for her to lie to her parents, probably not. Um, But at the same time, you know, at what point in time do young people begin to have the, not just the right, but the responsibility for making decisions for themselves? The bottom line is, This is obviously something that they both wanted, that they both participated in. It was a mutual decision. It wasn't purely self-seeking on Jeff's part. Now, yes, he came back and he bragged about it afterwards, which is absolutely problematic. But to me, that's really the only problematic part. Eric and Leslie, on the other hand, who Josh holds up as being this paragon of virtues simply on the basis of the fact that they waited until they got married you know looking 25 years later looking at the ministry that they built that came out of that i don't necessarily know that eric and leslie have the right to be held up as a paragon of virtue and then here we have josh talking about jeff and gloria and saying that uh jeff only went out with gloria because she was pretty because other guys liked her and she satisfied him sexually well Jeff went out with Gloria for, what did he say? They went out like a year. So obviously Jeff went out with Gloria for a long time before he figured out whether she satisfied him sexually. Not to mention the fact that it would have been really easy for, probably fairly easy for Jeff to just have sex with Gloria in the back of a car or on the couch. But instead, he seems to have kind of gone out of his way to make this an actual special night and a special time for Gloria. So we have these very cut and dried definitions of this is good this is bad this is right this is wrong and i don't think they actually hold up i don't think they hold up to first corinthians 13 because up until afterwards when jeff bragged about gloria it seems like jeff was actually working hard to include gloria or let gloria make her own decisions to treating gloria like an adult woman who has agency and can make her own decisions then we have Eric over here that does all the talking for Leslie and clearly is not actually making Leslie make any uh, make any decisions if we remember back in chapter one Josh was dating Kelly and he goes on a retreat and he decides that they need to break up and he says we both knew this was coming so he implies that somehow that was a mutual decision Yet, because Kelly says, do you think we could have a future together? I don't think Kelly knew it was coming, and I don't think it was a mutual decision. You have Josh unilaterally making a decision for both of them. I don't think that holds up to the, the definition of love as evidenced by 1 Corinthians 13. I personally do not feel that when a man unilaterally makes a decision for both of you, um, it seems to me that that is extremely self-serving. Then we have Josh making some very narrow-minded decisions about Jeff and Gloria. He's saying that Gloria only dated Jeff because he was a prize. He was good looking and athletic. That kind of smacks a little bit of jealousy to me. What's interesting is Josh frequently says, like, every relationship is an opportunity to show love to other people. So when Jeff comes and tells Josh, hey, Gloria and I slept together, Josh's response is one of outrage. It's one of self righteousness. How dare you? How dare you sleep with Gloria? And yet, here we have him writing that. The only reason Jeff went out with Gloria is because she was pretty and the other guys liked her. And the only reason that Gloria went out with Jeff is because he was a prize. He was good looking and athletic. So Josh, having said those things about Jeff and Gloria, how does that hold up to love is patient? Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Do you think that Josh is honoring Jeff and Gloria or their decision? Like, I'm sure the names are changed. Uh, I'm sure he, in that sense, he protected their actual identity. But the bottom line is he's not only writing about them in this book, but he's actually holding them up as being a model of what not to do as opposed to Eric and Leslie. The only thing Eric and Leslie did is they waited until they got married to have sex. That's not automatically a a self-sacrificial action. So the, one of the things that I absolutely agree with this chapter is we need to look at a different definition of love. But unlike what Josh claims, I don't think we need to just um, look at the difference between what, you know, quote unquote, the world teaches about love. We also have to look at what does evangelical culture teach about love? Because I personally believe that evangelical models of love are every bit as faulty as the models of love that we find in movies. I think the problem is we have two sort of primary sources of information that the majority of us look to which is either religion or culture like pop culture and I think they're both equally faulty. I don't personally believe that evangelical culture presents a true representation of what biblical love actually looks like. I'm going to stop there for now. Um, If this podcast has helped you at all, if you find anything in value, please, please, please share. Um, If you listen to this podcast on iTunes or on Spotify, if you could follow the podcast, it helps a lot. It helps so much. I'm really trying to uh, grow my audience. This is a brand new podcast. I'm going to leave links on the show notes. If you want to follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram, or visit my website, Um, I'll leave links for all of that. But this is a a brand new um, thing that I'm trying to start. So any help you could give me in spreading it or um, boosting it in any way is so deeply appreciated. I think there are millions of hurting people and I have a really strong passion for trying to help them, but I have to get the word out. So if you could help in that, that would be so awesome. Thank you so much. And um, I'll talk to you again next week.